Let me tell you a story. When I first came out here to, to replant this church, it was a culture shock for me. I didn't grow up in the church, as many of you know. And because of that, the only church experience that I'd had was the experience I had with the church that I went to right after I became a follower of Jesus. The church where I would eventually work, okay? It was a large church. A large church. It was staffed with a lot of specialized pastors. So pastors that did different things. They broke up the work into a bunch of different jobs. At one point, there were about nine pastors on staff, at the church, each of whom oversaw a specific ministry. So I started working there as a community life pastor, and then that job gave me the ability to minister to families and the needs of families and so on. And over time, I, I oversaw the men's ministry and then the evangelism ministry, but that was it. I was pretty limited because, again, we had other people to do the other stuff, and as a result, I didn't do much in the area of visitation, pastoral visitation, which is what you call it basically when a pastor visits a person in the hospital or a person who um, is, is stuck at home. We used to do those things before COVID. Um, but when I arrived here, and it was a real small place, and you guys remember the old building perhaps, I felt like I'd landed on Christian Mars. It was really weird. I was used to working with eight other specialized pastors, and here I would be working with zero other pastors. Zero. Like, not a one. Which meant I needed to learn how to do all the pastor things. And among them, of course, were fixing air conditioners, changing filters, clearing out the toilet, clearing out the sewer line, things like that. Cleaning up the garbages after... People leave a baby diaper in there and it ferments for, you know, weekend or more. So I had to do all the pastor things when I got here, including visitation, which I'd never really done. Now, before I go on with the rest of my story, I want to say up front that I have been profoundly blessed by every one of the ministry experiences that I've had, including visitation. So I'm not saying that I don't like it, I love it. I'm saying I didn't know how to do it. It's just never been my calling. So anyway, one day I received a visitation call and it was from a woman in her late 80s and she hadn't left her home in a very long time. So I drove over to her house and I knocked on the door and, and being out of my element, I was thinking to myself, how am I, a person who's only been a pastor for a short while at the time, a person who had had almost no previous interaction or experience with a person in her situation, how can I go in there and do anything at all, say anything at all that's helpful? And as these thoughts are kind of running through my brain and I'm second-guessing myself and all that, I hear a weak voice from inside the house call out, come on in, it's open. So I entered the home. And I noticed that the home was locked in, somewhere in the 1970s. I noticed the shag carpet... I noticed the 1,000-pound entertainment console. Some of you may remember these. They had a television, often black and white, a record player, an 8-track tape player, an AM-FM radio dial. It was all together, and the thing was huge. It was just took up a whole wall. 
they had the mustard yellow appliances in the house, the vintage Ethan Allen dinette set that lots of us got to buy and we're probably still paying for, even though most dinette sets are about $150 now because you get them at rooms to go and stuff. Anyway, I entered the house, sitting in the middle of the room, in a well-worn green fabric lazy boy chair was the woman whom I will call for purposes of this message Gertrude. That was my grandmother's name, so I figure it's safe to use. Plus, did you know the United States Chamber of Commerce discontinued the use of the name Gertrude in 1976? So it is safe for a sermon illustration. By the way, you young moms, if you're going to bring it back, mm, (laughs) just think twice about that one. And my grandmother was a wonderful lady, but anyhow. Gertrude, though, was the sweetest, gentlest woman I'd ever met. And I sat down to chat with her, and over the kind of old-timey Christian music that was playing on the Victrola, kids ask your parents, she recounted her life story for me. Told me about her youth. She told me about where she grew up in the Midwest. Told me about her late husband. Told me about our children. And it was a real blessing to me because when you talk to people who, who have these kind of memories, you, you, can, you can see the joy in their eyes. And it's a blessing to be able to talk to somebody who has that kind of joy. But when the story was done, I asked her, so what are you up to these days? I said, how do you spend your time now? How is God using you every single day? And with that, her, her countenance changed. Her body language changed. Her shoulders kind of slumped. And her answer took the air out of me. And she said to me, honestly, Pastor, I'm just sitting here passing the time. I'm just counting the days. I'm just waiting to die. I'm waiting for the Lord to call me home. Now, I want you to know, Jewish people would never say such a thing. Because we're afraid that you say it out loud and then God says, oh, you want to come home? Okay, you're done. But anyway, it really floored me to hear that. Because even though she was elderly, and she was, She wasn't ill. In fact, as it turned out, I mean, it would be years following my visit until she passed away. She was just done living. She'd given up. She wanted to forfeit her remaining time on earth. And you know what was weird? She didn't seem upset about it at all. She just was resigned to her fate. So I left her house. I spent about three hours there. And I just couldn't shake that troubled feeling I had because this faithful beautiful child of God had very matter-of-factly quit living before God was done with her. Now, around the same period, I was also getting to know another church member. He was in his 80s as well. His name was Frank, actually. That's his real name. Some of you guys knew him. This is not his picture, but <laughs> this is sort of my, the way I saw him. Unlike Gertrude, Frank had been around a while And even though he knew he was up there in age, one of his favorite things to say was, I know that I've got a lot more runway behind me than ahead of me. He used to say that all the time. But he knew he still had more to do for God. And he loved, I mean loved, to tell me stories about the way that he had devoted his life to the Lord. He had story after story after story about how he had traveled all over the country, all over the world, how he had served God when he traveled, how he had shared his faith. He'd retired way before. He retired quite young. 
but he continued to apply his gifts in retirement even more so. He worked on behalf of a number of ministries, including international mission in um, ministries, as well as he sat on the board of a Christian university in Hong Kong and would have to travel to Hong Kong uh, frequently. He never missed an outreach opportunity, and he also was that way here in town. He never missed an outreach opportunity here at Hammock Street to share his love of Jesus with every person he met. Over time, I met his children I met his grandchildren. I met his great-grandchildren. Each of them was following his lead. Some were missionaries. Some were business people who lived out their faith in the workplace. Some were pastors. They were all serving God with their lives. He served as a spiritual mentor for dozens of people, including me. He died just a few years ago. But he was serving God right up until the very end. And I'll never forget the stories he told me. And I will be forever blessed to have had his life as an example of the way a man should devote his time to God. So we have Gertrude and we have Frank. Two octogenarians, two different approaches to life, two different approaches to time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to celebrate you, to celebrate our faith, to worship together in song, to fellowship together with people that we know and love, with people that we just met but are looking forward to getting to know. Thank you, God, for giving us this freedom. God, as we press on this morning, as we take a look at the scripture, as we try to understand how you would have us live this life, we ask, God, that you would use your word to change us change our heart, change our minds, and draw us closer to you. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, I want to bring you to the sixth installment in our series, Win the Day. If you're new and joining us, don't worry. You'll be able to understand we're not counting on you to know all the other stuff we said, the other sermons. If you want to listen, hammockstreetchurch.com. Just click on the sermon tab. You can watch anything you missed if you're interested. But we've been talking about how, if we want to live abundantly, remember John 10.10 tells us that God, that Jesus came to give us this abundant life. If we want to live abundantly, if we want to fulfill God's design for our lives, our lives need to be founded. In other words, God's word needs to be the foundation of all that we do. Now, we began this series by talking about how if we wanted to win the day, we needed to flip the script. We talked about the fact that we can change our lives by changing our stories. We are in control of our own stories. We can tell them however we want, and we can change our lives if we just change the story. Then we talked about how we can win the day if we learn to kiss the wave. And we learned to take a step in faith. We learned that when we take a step in faith, we can go from victim to victor. Next, we saw how we can win the day when we learn to eat the frog, remember that? When we learn to discipline ourselves, to tackle our biggest daily challenges first, then God will do big things in and through our lives. Next, we saw how we can begin to live the abundant life that God has called us to live by learning to fly the kite. We learned how if we're faithful with a little bit, then we'll be faithful with a lot. And then last week, we saw how we need to cut the rope and jump right in 
to a life of faith in God. Well, this week, we're going to be talking about how we don't find the time to live our lives for God. We make the time to live our lives for God. And we make the time by learning to wind the clock. All right, now, what does that mean? What does it mean to wind the clock? Well, let's start off with two important questions. How old are you, but how long have you lived? Hmm. Don't those look similar? Don't those sound like the same question? Well, of course they do, but a more nuanced look, which, by the way, we're losing the ability to look at things in a nuanced fashion outside of these doors, so we're going to try to keep doing it inside of these doors. But that more nuanced look will reveal a critical distinction. Now, like most people, I'll tell you that I always thought I knew what time was and how time worked. I knew that as long as I'm alive, I keep on getting to celebrate birthdays. You know this fact. Birthdays are good for you. Statistics show that people who have the most birthdays live the longest. (laughs) I think Abraham Lincoln said that first. Somebody Google that. That was about the extent to which I considered my future. I mean, life was all about getting older. Life was all about passing the time. And during the first decade of my life, so this is ages 0 to 10, though like everyone else, I had a birthday party every year, I don't remember much else. And by the way, if you have young children and you're going out of your way to make these huge elaborate parties and all that stuff, just know they won't remember So take your pictures and you enjoy them, but they're not going to remember a thing. Then we enter school, usually around five years old, and we find ourselves placed on a track, a pretty predictable track. It's called the education track, right? And and even though that time in school does add a new dimension to our lives, that we do have new experiences during those early years. We meet people and we realize things about ourselves. And some people can make important discoveries about themselves during this zero to 10 age group. But for the most part, it's a time to be exposed to information and skills that'll be important later, later on in life. See, in that way, our early schooling really falls short of being a time of profound self-awareness. I mean, come on, let's face it. You know, young children aren't very self-aware. That's one of their charms, but it's also sometimes not so charming. Now, most people continue on this education track until they're about 18 years old. That's about right, right? So you graduate high school more or less when you're about 18 years old. Some people stay on the track a little bit longer. I was initially done with my education at 24. I went back as a grown-up. My youngest son, who's still on this track, will be on this track until he's in his early 30s before he's done. But for me, between the ages of 5 and 24, I was just kind of bumping along. I was going to school, I was doing things with friends and family, vaguely dreaming about my future. In other words, I was just kind of counting birthdays. I was kind of just passing the time. When I finished school, I embarked upon the professional career that I'd worked so hard to attain. And even though I didn't know it at the time, though I was alive... Though I had experienced a few milestones in life, I graduated college, I graduated law school, I moved around, I had jobs, I got married, I hadn't really started living with a purpose. I hadn't started pursuing a life's calling. So after lawyering for roughly five years, I turned 30. My birthday that year fell on a Saturday. Now for some reason, at the birthday party that my wife Beth threw for me when I was 30, I was totally freaked out. 
And some of you younger folks, if I've talked to you about you're getting older, you're turning 30, you're turning 40, you're turning 50, and I talked to you about that, and I said, yeah, none of the others scared me, but 30 scared me. Because that night it dawned upon me, I'm not a kid anymore. Like, I can't make kid excuses anymore. And it threw me into this deep funk. That was a Saturday after my birthday on a Monday, still in a funk, I went into work. I went into the office. But I just felt so isolated. I felt so empty. I felt so uncertain about everything. Well, it was about a week later. It was actually eight days later. It was a typical Tuesday. On that day, I met someone who would change my life forever. That morning, in a moment of boldness, I asked a coworker why, unlike every single person in the firm, why he seemed hopeful, why he seemed purposeful. And he introduced me to Jesus. He helped me understand that in spite of my innate sinfulness, Jesus loves me anyway. And out of his love for me, he made a way for me to be connected forever to God by paying for all of my sins on the cross and then coming back from the dead. And if I would just turn from the way that I was, turn from my natural self, and turn to him and make him my Lord and my Savior and my leader, I would be born again. And I could begin to live a life of purpose. And I could begin to make my life better. And I could begin to become better at life. That marked my turn from trying to make a living to intentionally making a life. That marked a point when I stopped simply ticking off the minutes and started living for the moments. That marked the day that I understood the difference between having been alive for 30 years and pledging to spend the rest of my days not just alive, but living for God. Time is measured in minutes, but life is measured in moments. That's winding the clock. Winding the clock is the way that God's people learn to make the most of every minute in order to maximize every moment. That's how God has called us as his people to live. So let's turn now to the Apostle Paul's letter to the believers in Ephesus to see what I'm talking about. Now, first, a little bit of background, because I like to make sure we all know where we are and what we're talking about. Ephesus was a Greek city located in modern-day Turkey. It was the capital of the Roman region called Asia. Now, Ephesus was a busy port, and it was a busy trade hub, and it brought people in from all over the ancient world, which led to the city becoming a place that was steeped in paganism. Paul's letter was written to the Jesus followers who lived there. Now, Paul, from a prison in Rome, about 28 years after the resurrection, wrote a letter to instruct and encourage the followers of Jesus about how to capture their time for God. Now, this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, had two parts. The first part, Paul taught about God's plan for the world. And in the second part, Paul taught about how God will use his people in that plan. And regarding time, here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. Look carefully then how you walk. By the way, walk is, is a way of saying how you live, how you travel through life, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what's Paul saying here? Well, here's what he's saying. As God's people, living in this broken world, 
We need to be mindful of our time. We need to endeavor, we need to try to use every part of every day to do good things for God because we're living in bad days and our time on the earth is limited. As such, it is incumbent upon us to use every opportunity that we have to turn people from the darkness of the world to the light of God, to show others what a life of God and a life lived for God, what it looks like. We need to be that example. As God's people, we've been created for an important work, and we can't afford to fritter away the limited time allotted to us in the same way that the ungodly people do. Therefore, we need to rescue our time from the evil things in this world and repurpose that time as much of it as possible anyway to enjoy the blessings of God. We need to learn to wind the clock. Okay, so how do we do that? We do that by being ever mindful to distinguish minutes from moments. All right, I've said that a few times now. Here's what I mean. See, we live in a minute-focused world. We've divided our days into minutes and into hours. We, we wear or carry timekeeping devices, right? We have our watches. We have our phones. And these things allow us to plan and execute our days really down to the second. You know, that wasn't a concept in the ancient world. You couldn't plan like that. You didn't have synchronized watches. You realize that all of us who have a smart watch or a smartphone, we're all, we're all tracking on the exact same time. You know, back in the old days, we had to set our own clocks and everybody had their time a little bit different. It doesn't happen anymore. Now our interactions are scheduled down to the millisecond. We say, I'll meet you at one. We mean one, like standard time, one. We'll have dinner at six. We'll go to bed at 12. We've developed technology to help us do that and also to help us do things faster than ever before. We love, as a society, all things Instant. Cup of soup. Instant oatmeal. Something that makes true Southerners cringe. Instant grits. We cook our food in microwave ovens. We now are all enjoying the Instant Pot. It's all about instant. It's funny, there's a comedian back in the 70s. His name was Yakov Smirnov. He's a Russian who emigrated to the United States. Pretty funny guy. He was asked when he got here what he loved most about America, and his answer was, I love your grocery stores. That's what he said. I walked down an aisle, and I saw powdered milk. He said, just add water, and you get milk. He said, and, and then I saw powdered orange juice. Just add water, and you get orange juice. And then I saw baby powder. And I thought to myself, what a country. That was his line. But actually, we live in a culture that takes Andy Warhol's statement about everybody having their 15 minutes of fame. That's who said that. We take that as a life goal. We want to get rich quick. We want a quick fix. We're an instant gratification culture. And each successive generation takes this notion to a higher level. Nowadays, we can download software Instantly. Remember when we used to buy software, old uh, folks like me? We'd have to buy it, and they'd mail us a disk, and then it would take forever to upload. Now it's instant. Amazon now offers same-day delivery. Has anyone tried the same-day delivery yet? 
That is wild. Some, not everything will deliver the same day, but wow. Now we get upset if Amazon Prime doesn't get our stuff to us in the time that they told us they get it to us, right? You'll have it the next day. We don't get it the next day. We're all, all of a sudden, we're texting and what's going on here? That's what we do. One of the most popular social media platforms I'm sure you've all heard of, if you haven't tried it, of course, is Twitter. Why is it popular? Because it forces people to say what they need to say quickly. In 100, used to be 140 characters, now it's 280 characters. I mean, you've got to get it out fast. But interestingly, though we figured out how to do things faster, we haven't found any more time. This is because we don't know the difference between minutes and moments. We're focused on minutes, but God's focused on moments. He wants us to be focused on moments also. All right, here's our verse again. Making the best use of time. Now, as is often the case, our clue to God's meaning lies in the original Greek. So we don't talk about the Greek just so we can walk out of here going, I learned a little bit of Greek. You know, that doesn't make us great. But the Greek language, as we've talked about before, is a lot more precise than the English language. The English language is a bit more colorful. We have a lot of idioms and a lot of expressions. But the Greek language is very precise. Now, the Greeks had two words for time, chronos and kairos. Now, they are, as we say, two sides of the same coin, but they're as different as heads and tails. Chronos is clock time. That's where we get our word chronology or chronograph. Chronos is sequential, past, present, future. Chronos is quantitative, seconds, minutes, hours. That's Kronos. Now, don't misunderstand. Managing Kronos time is very important. If you don't control your calendar, your calendar will control you. But the word used up here in verse 16 for time isn't Kronos. It's Kairos. Kairos translates as a proper or opportune time for action. Kairos translates as the right time. It's a special kind of time. It means that kairos isn't a minute word, it's a moment word. You manage your chronos to make room in your life for kairos. In a sense, kairos refers to counting the cost of how we use our time, how we choose to use our chronos. And not just the actual cost, but the opportunity cost as well. That means if we're doing something, we miss the opportunity of doing something else. That's an opportunity cost. I said a few weeks ago, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are days when decades happen. Kairos is all about capturing those days for God. Kairos is about recognizing life's holy moments. Remember the word holy? Holy just means set apart. It's a, a moment that's different from all the other moments. It, it stands on its own. When we recognize that we're in the midst of a holy moment, remember what Moses did when he was in God's presence? He took off his shoes. And we need to metaphorically take off our shoes in those moments and realize that it's those moments that we're in the presence of God. It's taking the time to smell the roses. Or in the words of Jesus, taking the time to consider the lilies. That's what it means to smell the roses. Consider the flowers. Think about how they grow. How they don't worry, how they don't stress out. And he says, even Solomon, even King Solomon, the richest man to ever live in all of his glory, wasn't like one of these simple flowers. So when it comes to managing time, we don't find time, we make time. 
all of us are allotted the same amount of seconds every minute, the same amount of minutes every hour, the same amount of hours every day. Time is the great equalizer. You don't find the time to be with your family. You make the time. You don't find the time to remain connected with your spouse. You make the time. You don't find the time for God. You make the time. How do you do that? Well, first, you need to learn to curse the barren fig tree. You want me to explain that? I will. In the Gospels, there's this miracle that I've always found fascinating because all the other miracles that you read about in Scripture are life-giving. But this one is the exact opposite. So here it is. Let's take a look at it in Mark 11. When they came from Bethany, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. He was going to go pick a fig. And he came to it and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He cursed the barren fig tree. Why did he do that? Well, it's pretty straightforward. He did it because he was hungry and the fig tree wasn't producing fruit. The fig tree wasn't serving its purpose. That is not good stewardship. God's created us. He's gifted us. He's given us a purpose and he wants us to use the gifts for the purpose. It's not good stewardship when you're not doing that. Faithfulness is fruitfulness. All of us have barren fig trees in our lives. All of us have things that waste our time and waste our energy. And cursing the barren fig tree is identifying the things in our lives that waste our time and then eliminating them. How many times have we gotten off of social media because we've recognized this only to get back on? But still, we're kind of on the right track when we're doing that. Now, one way to curse the fig tree is we talked about it a few weeks ago. It's called habit stacking. It's taking things that you're already doing in your daily routine and then adding to them in creative ways. To properly leverage our limited time, we we have to sort of create these, these cues in our lives that trigger good habits. Don't just listen to the news, for example, but as you're listening to the news or reading the news, pray for the news. Pray for the people they're talking about. Pray for the situations that the people are in. You can listen to a Bible study or a a decent Bible podcast during your morning routine. If you're running, if you're walking, if you're working out, if you're just drinking coffee, you can do that. We can listen to a Christian book while we commute. We can curse this barren fig tree in that way. We can also curse the barren fig tree by establishing boundaries. What does it mean to establish a boundary? Well, by the way... If you're a parent of adult children, as, as I am, as Beth and I are, you, you really still struggle with boundaries, I want you to know. Like, like I really thought that, you know, kids turn 18 and they make all their own decisions and you never have to advise them again. Yeah, that's not true in case you have young kids. But establishing boundaries is essentially making pre-decisions. Think about it this way. Remember Joseph toward the end of Genesis? Joseph made a pre-decision that he would always honor Potiphar, his master. So remember what happened when Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Fur, when she propositioned Joseph, he didn't waste any time trying to decide in the moment, am I interested? Am I not interested? What do I do with this? He stuck to his boundary. He already had a predetermined idea. He already knew what he was going to do, and he was richly rewarded for it. 
That saved time. That helped him devote his time to God. That's how we curse the fig tree. All right, second, we need to do the math. We need to determine how many minutes or how many hours it'll take for us to do the things we want to do. And then we need to figure out, knowing that, how many minutes or how many hours it'll take to do the things we need to do. We always have these things that we want to do and these things that we need to do. And then we need to arrange our time so we can accomplish both. You manage minutes by cursing barren fig trees and by doing the math. And when managing minutes becomes a science, managing the moments becomes an art. So, what do we do with all this information about time? Well, first we need to learn to identify and steward teachable moments. Again, when you have kids, it's a really great thing to do because there's so many teachable moments. Your child does something that you told them not to do, they got hurt, boom, teachable moment. Do you see? I told you so doesn't help. Better to say, do you see? This is why I advised you, so on and so forth. Teachable moments. Those are kairos moments. And by the way, if you're paying attention, teachable moments present themselves all the time. But a lot of times we're, we're too reactive when we need to be proactive. We need to expect these teachable moments to come along and then kind of have one in the chamber, you know, kind of have an idea, a teachable point to, to bring up as soon as it happens. Teachable moments are the moments that God gives us to change lives, our lives and the lives of the people we're talking to. How do you wind that Kairos clock? You capture the teachable moments given to us by God's Holy Spirit. You see opportunities where other people see issues. No one was better at this than Jesus. The religious leaders, remember, wanted to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus made that a teachable moment. He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. They learned the lesson. Remember when the religious leaders criticized the woman who was anointing Jesus' feet? Jesus used that as a teachable moment. He used it to instruct the world will hear what the woman had done for him. Remember when the disciples tried to keep the kids away from Jesus? Hey, you kids, get out of here. We got places to go, things to do, they said, right? Jesus said, no. He used that as a teachable moment to teach them that he wants every one of us to approach him like little children. In faith, trusting, and open. Even on the cross, when the soldiers mocked and maimed Jesus, he used that incident as a teachable moment to teach about forgiveness. Forgive them for they know not what they do. Now there are people around us all the time that need us, that need us to be peacemakers, that need us to be grace givers, that need us to be tone setters. And we need to learn to capture such moments in time. All right? Second, we need to accumulate experiences with God. Now I'll tell you this, as a, as a preacher, I talk to a lot of friends that, that do the same thing. We're always looking for explanations and stories and moments. We're always looking for things to tell as a, a sermon illustration. But that's what we all need to do, actually. We need to stop accumulating possessions and start accumulating experiences. Because those experiences are going to be the things that drive us and the things that we remember and the things that give us joy. And I haven't met many people, I haven't met any people, possessed by a demon but I've met a lot of people possessed by their possessions. You gotta be careful. There are decades when nothing happens and there are days when decades happen and they come in all 
sizes, and shapes. We need to start accumulating them. Okay, we're out of time. Huh? I did intend that pun, by the way. You have to manage the minutes. You have to manage the moments. God can do more in one day than we can accomplish in a thousand lifetimes. But in order to do God's work, we need to always be mindful to wind the clock. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this message on time. We thank you for reminding us that our time is limited, but you are not. That our influence is limited, but yours is not. That we've been called to serve you, to represent you here as your ambassadors, but we've got limited time. So God, help us to continue to understand how to manage that time for you, how to capture those moments for you, and how we can live lives that bring you glory. God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.